Hello and welcome to The Popular Show with me, James A. Smith. Claire Fox's journey to being Baroness Fox of Buckley runs through the Trotskyist Revolutionary Communist Party to Living Marxism magazine, Spiked Online, the Academy of Ideas, the Brexit Party and now to the House of Lords. Some have described this as a perfectly well-trodden path from left to right, but I think there's more to the story uh, and I'm really glad to be talking to Baroness Fox today. Uh, welcome to The Popular Show. Hello. Uh, thanks for giving us some time. Just to kind of um, give a little, little bit of context to our listeners, when Boris Johnson became Prime Minister in the summer of 2019, he brought with him his long-standing advisor, Manira Mertzer, uh, who is uh, an associate of yours, who has had a, a kind of very similar trajectory in a lot of the institutions and publications that, that you're most associated with. Uh, Boris Johnson describes uh, Munira as one of the five women who have shaped my life. Uh, after the Conservative Party won the 2019 general election, um, Boris's government then nominated you to the House of Lords. Um, I, I'd love to hear this story. How did this come about? Uh, were you were you expecting this? Was this part of the kind of negotiation between the Tory party and the Brexit party? What can you tell us? Uh, so first of all, I, I, I don't speak on behalf of Manira and she's not been an associate of mine for a long time. She's a fantastically interesting, much younger woman than I am. And, um, and certainly I've known her over the years, but I think those people who try and make some story out of this usually get it wrong. Um, mm -hmm. And because there is not the same kind of story. And I haven't, um, uh, your introduction implied that I'd moved to the right. I don't consider myself to be on the right. Um, I have nothing to do with the right. It's neither here nor there. Um, on, on your question about the House of Lords, then what happens is that you get a phone call. I certainly wasn't expecting it. I don't know what negotiations you're talking about between the Brexit Party and the Conservative Party, because I had nothing to do with any of that. And well, the Brexit Party stood, stood down in uh, constituencies. Yeah, but, uh, I, but this uh, is this has got nothing. Mm. You know, that was Nigel Farage made a decision, announced that decision, as is well known, um, and the what happened to me in relation to the House of Lords completely got nothing to do with that. Um, you know, people speculate over all sorts of uh, phenomena in life and usually come up with ideas that they imagine happened, but which they don't know happened and I certainly don't know that happened well um, I've, invited, I've invited you because I don't want to speculate no I, no I know but I'm, I'm, just <laughs> I'm just explaining I'm just explaining mm -hmm. that yeah there's no relationship between those two things you, you, you made the connection I'm saying there is no connection but you get a phone call um from you know an anonymous person at number 10 saying you know we'd like to offer you a peerage and when you said we're was I expecting it I the last thing in the world I was expecting and I was not of a mind to take it. I want to abolish the House of Lords. I think it's an anti-democratic chamber. As a second chamber, I don't think there should be uh, appointed Lords. And so you could say, why on earth did you take it? But like all things in, in when you have matters of judgment, I, having thought long and hard about it, thought that maybe I could use it as a platform. And that's effectively why I took it and history will judge i really want to know more about um about how you're using it as a platform and what you're trying to achieve 
in yeah. the Lords. But can, can I give you one explanation? I mean, you, you said that uh, that you were you were surprised to get the call and, and don't really have a very complicated explanation of why um, the, the the government wanted you in the House of Lords. Here's Andy Beckett in the in the Guardian, and this is what he thought. Um, he's speaking about the 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 Tory Party 2019 manifesto, which presumably Munira had, had a, a fair hand in. Beckett writes, it's crude but effective repetitions and its promises to champion freedom of expression and unleash the country's potential by cutting red tape uh, had clear echoes of the Revolutionary Communist Party network's preoccupations and polemical style. When conservatism is in a confrontational phase as it is now, the relentlessness and conviction of ex-leftists can turn out to be very useful. Uh, do you, does any of that ring true, or would you well, disagree? Well, you know, Andy Becker has written a number of articles about um, the former Revolutionary Communist Party, which ended, I think, um, nearly twenty-five years ago now, is it, or longer than that, um, and has had a sort of conspiratorial mindset about it, and mm-hmm. something of an obsession ever since. So um, he he will undoubtedly have his ideas that whether they bear any relationship to reality. I don't, I'm not a member of the Conservative Party. I have absolutely no inner insight as to their thinking any more than you do. I mean, it's just as a political commentator for many years, I have ideas about what they uh, might be trying to do at any given time. I'm absolutely certain that the decision to offer peerages to the likes of Kate Hoey, Gisela Stewart and myself was an indication of the fact the Conservative Party understood something about why they had had such a massive majority at the 2019 general election, which was that they were voted for by people who thought that it was the only way to achieve Brexit. And Mm -hmm. us three women in particular were associated with a more left-leaning Brexit than other people. We were people who were not part of the Conservative Party. And um, undoubtedly, a lot of the voters who voted for Boris Johnson had previously voted Labour or associated themselves with the left, and then they voted Conservative for the first time in many generations, often, for their families. And so it was an acknowledgement of that. I've no doubt about that. And I hope that also my contribution to... um, debates on free speech and the work of the Academy of Ideas and the annual Battle of Ideas Festival and the fact that I initiated the school's debating competition, all of these things, you know, were things which you could say um, were uh, issues, ways that you could say that the Conservative Party were saying, as they have tried to say, I think completely inconsistently as it happened, that they want to be associated with free speech. So mm-hmm. they offer me, they don't, they don't tell you why. It's not like that. You get offered it, I had to think about it, and um, long and hard, and I made the decision whether that was the right one or not. Uh, you know, only, who knows the answer, that's a kind of personal decision. But I think that the, the, the you know, the Andy Beckett thing is to suggest all sorts of manoeuvrings. And as I say, I, I just don't know what the Conservative Party would be thinking, but I do know that they would know that they had to acknowledge the role of people on the left who delivered Brexit because they had to do that. I mean, but they didn't have to do it, but I can see why they would do that. That makes sense to me. 
And mm -hmm. it wasn't just me. That's the point I'm making. You know, there's quite a lot of people who were offered independent. You know, nobody said, do you want to be a conservative? Nobody tried to persuade anyone to get involved in the party. Nothing. You get offered it. You get told that you are an ind you would be an independent, which I am, um, and that you can join the crossbench or anything else. And um, uh, Giza Stewart's joined the crossbenches, and Kate Hoey and I have stayed as independent peers. And there were other people who were offered peerages in the same uh, period. What brought you to Brexit um, as a as a as a cause and a political position, and what made you take that further step um, into actual political alignment with Nigel Farage and the Brexit Party? Because I, I, I should say, I, I feel the need to be kind of humble about this because I do support Brexit. We, we've had many Brexit supporters from across the political spectrum on this show, and I wanted the Corbyn project to retain that 2017 position of saying that Brexit is a sealed deal and we're going to do it and we're going to build our economics around it. I wanted that to happen. The kind of internal velocity of the party meant that didn't happen. So I, I, I don't ask the question totally critically, but what, was there a sort of dilemma for you in getting, in taking that step into getting involved with Nigel Farage, who for, for most of the sort of the, the liberal side of, of Britain is uh, is a sort of far right figure who, who uh, is, is, is kind of completely beyond the pale? Yeah, I mean, I when I when I actually did the speech, when I it was announced as a candidate for the Brexit Party, I made that point sitting next to Nigel Farage that I never thought I'd be sitting next to him. And of course, it was a dilemma, and I um, was knew I would pay a cost among I pay the price amongst my liberal left friends uh, for for making that decision. But the initial question you ask, which in a way, what's extraordinary is that you need to ask, I mean, I understand why you've asked it, which is mm -hmm. that many people on the left were, you're a sceptic, I wasn't particularly, I, you know, I'd never gone out and campaigned for a referendum, but I thought there should be one, but I'd never campaigned, but it wasn't one of my big issues. I was just genuinely surprised when the referendum was called, which I understood it was called by David Cameron in order to resolve a problem with the Conservative um, uh, Party, and splits therein around Europe. I mean, I wasn't, I didn't think he was ever um, doing it for any kind of like positive motives. I was quite surprised at how many Eurosceptic Conservatives that I knew in public life who abandoned uh, voting, uh, campaigning for leave, um, you know, that actually it was, started, it was a bizarre situation. And I was even more horrified and genuinely fed up that so many Eurosceptics I knew on the left abandoned it, right? And they abandoned it on the basis that it was a right-wing cause, which made no sense because the whole of the Conservative Party was arguing for Remain. I mean, sure. it was the official yeah. mm -hmm. position of the Conservative Party. So, like, so what happened was simply that I, I, I kind of made it known. I mean, I didn't even think I was making a declaration. You know, it, it came out because I did a lot of media work that I was somebody who was going to vote leave in the referendum. And, you know, it was like unleashing the dogs of war. You know, people started attacking me, saying, oh, you've become far right. You know, you know what happened, right? It's like unbelievable. And people that, you know, had influenced my, you know, I'd been influenced in the way that the left often were by Tony Benn. But, I mean, there was a whole swathe of people. It wasn't just Tony Benn. Um, and, and it was funny because, you know, I I'd had conversations at the time with, and people like Paul Mason and 
uh, Owen Jones about Brexit and that, you know, what was happening in Greece was so damning that that it seemed as though the left would actually be involved in this. And I assumed, mm-hmm. I made that assumption, that Jeremy Corbyn, <laughs> one of the people I thought I was going to agree with on something, right, as the leader of the Labour Party, would campaign for leave or would not at least, you know, take the party down or remain Reid. I understand the dynamics. I, mean, I don't. We don't need to rehearse it all. But I, I was surprised that there wasn't more internal arguments around Brexit in the Labour Party. So that's what happened. I became an unusual, therefore, voice of the left, if you want, on the Brexit question inadvertently, just because I had a profile. So, of course, what happened then was that I was called far right even mm-hmm. though I was on the left. And everybody said, oh, well, how remarkable, you've gone from being a Trotskyist to far right. That all happened. Now, of course, when the referendum was won, I was surprised, although I'd seen how popular um, the Brexiteers uh, rank and file grassroots campaigning was. And I was heartened by that. I, I didn't know that we uh, would win that. I never joined any official campaign. I didn't vote join, vote, leave or any of these things. But what I did was I spoke when I was asked to speak. I spoke at lots of college events on Brexit and the build up to the referendum. I spoke at a lot of just ordinary rank and file rallies and meetings around the country. But I never joined an official campaign. And I assumed when it when we won, you know, it's like sort of great, you know, and I carry on being the director, gathering my ideas and doing all my stuff. And then when people said to me, they'll never let it happen. I didn't believe it. I thought it was like some conspiratorial lunacy, you know, what you talking about, of course it will. And the rest really is history, which was was a concerted attempt to stop Brexit occurring. Like you, um, I thought that the Labour Party made a very shrewd decision in 2017, and I I assumed that would be the end of it. I mean, you know, I thought that would be the Labour Party position. So you ask me then why I stood for the Brexit Party. So I, I, what happened was, was that I, had got to the point um, in 20, I can't remember when, when it was, but I, I suddenly realised that actually they were not going to deliver Brexit. I mean, it wasn't going to happen. And I was part of, I used to go to those, I mean, I don't even know who organised them, some people, some trade unionists and um, uh, uh, people around the CPGB, I suppose, you know, uh, um, Communist Party of Great Britain and various types were organising these left Brexit meetings. And then there was that, that, Brexit uh, campaign that was kind yeah. of uh, quite a lot of lefty involvement and I was going to some of those meetings and I and I was talking to people and I was saying if we get to the point where there's a European election you know we should definitely stand people should stand I tried to talk to people about the need to stand because I noticed something was happening on the ground at a lot of these uh, grassroots groups that carried on uh, levers groups around the country that were asking me to speak was that I thought that if Brexit isn't delivered, people are going to become viscerally disengaged from political life in such a nihilistic way. It'll be terrible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It'll be a disaster. I couldn't bear it. So I tried to talk to people about what a left, the left might do. And everybody said, good idea. And nobody did anything. And so um, I was approached by the Brexit part. Oh, I know. I, I, I spoke at a rally, a Leave EU rally, and I, and I was 
I was even then I was kind of nervous because Nigel Farage um, was, you know, hosting it. I'd never met him or, you know, didn't know him or, or, you know, didn't have any contact with him. And I thought, oh, God, if I speak at this rally, it's going to cause chaos. Right. I went to the, the one of these left Brexit meetings, had hundreds of people at it. And I said, we should all go down to this rally because it's going to be hundreds of people at it. And it split the room, you know, half the room said, yes, we should. And the other half said, we can't, they're all fascists. We can't be seen anywhere near them. I mean, do, there's an irony there, of course, that Tony Benn and Enoch Powell I know, were I know. Uh, side by yeah, side in, exactly. in the original referendum yeah. in 1973. And that, and that was the rally. I won't go. That was the rally that Paul Embry uh, spoke at as well. That's the first time I met Paul Embry, in fact, um, on that rally. And he subsequently fell out with the FDU, not just fell out with, but got disciplined for speaking on it. I spoke at that and it was. It was such a fantastic occasion. I talked to so many people and they all knew me off Sky News or things like this, right? So people were coming up, people saying, and 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 basically people were saying, you've got to stand. You know, I kind of got lobbied. I said, no, I got asked by them. I said, no, absolutely not, not doing it. And then I watched David Lammy um, on a TV programme saying that the ERG were worse than the Nazis. And I phoned them up the next day and said, I've changed my mind. And I, because I couldn't stand it, I couldn't bear that Brexit was being associated with racism in such an explicit way. I thought if somebody from the left doesn't do this, Nigel Farage and the Brexit party are going to wipe up in these European elections and it will be seen only in one way. That's why I did it. But I knew what would happen and it happened. Hmm. Something that I'm still puzzled, but I've, I've heard you give that account uh, in other interviews in, in the past. And something that still slightly puzzles me is how similar it actually is to a lot of the um, sort of soft Corbynista kind of um, commentators, people who would say, oh, I voted to remain, but we have to honour democracy and have to go through with it or we'll lose the election if we don't. Um, that is to say, a position on the Corbyn left that I never thought went far enough. I thought people had to actually make an argument for how they were going to inhabit and use Brexit for a, a left-wing purpose, as opposed to this sort of negative defence of Brexit. So I, I guess what you've given there is a, is a sort of negative defence of Brexit. If we don't see through democracy, then people are going to be disillusioned or worse. Um, if if the left doesn't get involved in Brexit, then it's going to be completely inhabited and seen as a racist right-wing project and so on. I guess that I, I, I sort of stress that because it slightly surprises me because your own work with Spiked, we'll keep it recent, Spiked and the, the Academy of Ideas uh, and uh, your, your, write, your book on free speech is so sort of strident in what it argues is wrong with the country um, that I'm sort of surprised not to hear you make more of a kind of connection between what you want Brexit to achieve and that analysis that you have of what's gone wrong in Britain. I know, but you, you but you asked me how I ended up standing next to Nigel Farage, not why I voted Brexit, right? I mean, that's a different story, right? Okay. And, and, and Can it you is tell that story? story? No, but the story is um, that, and this is why I referenced Tony Benn, the story for me has always been that the European Union has been used particularly by the, the, uh, by the establishment of every member of its, uh, every nation state leadership, UK in this instance, 
as a way of ring fencing off decision making from democratic accountability from the voters. It was a way of saying, oh, you can't discuss that because you're, you know, you, the voters, the plebs, the ordinary working people, um, you wouldn't understand that. It has to be dealt with by this set of experts far away from you. And they removed more and more decision making from um, uh, the ability for uh, voters to have a say. And so obviously, I mean, it's well rehearsed. I just, I just don't want to repeat things that are, are well known, but that could have been Corbynite and uh, nationalizing the industry's agenda, right? It could mm -hmm. be at that level. The, the point about something like whether you nationalize the industries or not is a decision that should only and can only be made democratically in a country. And the idea that you couldn't do it because somebody outside of the country said, no, it's against all rules and you'll be penalized if you do it, it was obviously an anathema to anyone who would want to make that decision. Not because I think we should nationalize every industry, but because you should be able to decide whether you nationalize every yeah. industry. It seems obvious to me. And, but the main thing was, was that it undermines the agency of the, the franchise, right? It removes that long fought for ability for people to say at a ballot box, everyone is equal and we get to say and make a determination of what our destinies will be. So the, the removal of that is basically makes a democracy completely uh, emptied out. And uh, as a consequence of which the working class, and this, this is kind of is a part of the technocratic rule that, that by the way, the EU were not responsible for, but which the, uh, the political parties in the UK used as their excuse for their technocracy. So, so, mm -hmm. so it, it suited them, right? All of them, you know, that they, they felt much more at home discussing, you know, the way the economy would be run with people in Brussels or Strasbourg than they did going on the stump and talking about it with voters, right? So, so what, what would happen is, is that that technocratic um, experience, particularly um, you know, from Thatcher onwards, but, you know, embodied by Blairism in, in, in many ways, um, was a way of making the working class, people would sort of like be, the Labour Party's version of the working class, because that would be what I'm interested in, would be to say they're kind of poor people who need to be helped. You know, they're kind of more mm -hmm. sympathetic. They use the rhetoric. And it's like a kind of social work attitude, you know. It never sees them as equals. It's always like we'll be nicer to them than nasty miserable Tories or be horrible. Well, yeah, that, that, but combined with uh, a totally authoritarian over-policing of, um, oh, of, of the so-called socially excluded, um, uh, totally. the, other, the other face of that uh, same house. Absolutely. But mm. all I'm saying is even at the more, even at where people think they were being more favourable to the working mm -hmm. class, it was at the level of a kind of paternalistic condescension. Did New Labour yeah. have a big role in your sort of political formation or the development of your your critique yeah because well i i think that um i i and to clarify i i don't have anything to do with spiked i i don't say that in any defensive way whatsoever i mean just just to say um i've written a few articles for them and um, i know them all because i was the publisher of lm magazine which was the the the, the magazine that 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 replace living Marxism after the Revolutionary Communist Party ended. And um, I, you know, myself and a few people had the bright idea of 
launching this Beyond Left and Right magazine, which was actually a reaction to kind of Blairism. That's what I was mm -hmm. going to say. And actually tried to identify saying, you know, left and right no longer have the same meaning anymore. You know, what what are the fundamentals that we stand for? And some of those issues around free speech and anti-nanny statism and the idea of um, uh, emphasising uh, um, people's individual agency and so on emerged during that time. And so Spike uh, 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 came out after the magazine uh, lost a bankrupt, uh, went bankrupt after losing the libel case. The, some of the editorial team set up Spike and I set up um, what was then the Institute of Ideas, now the Academy of Ideas. And we, uh, in that sense, we went our separate ways. Um, it doesn't mean I don't agree with them on loads of stuff. I just wanted to clarify that. But therefore, it also helps explain that, yeah, you know, there I was, Revolutionary Communist Party no longer existed, and I was still interested in politics, and I was particularly interested in having live public debates, which is what I started doing. The reason I got involved in LM was because I wanted to put on big festivals and uh, politics, because I wanted to try and recreate the public square because I thought politics had been squeezed out of politics through spin and so on and so forth. So everything about Blairism, from the spin doctors, the, the ma massaging of the message, the, the kind of slick media operation, the contempt um, for the working class in all sorts of ways were things I reacted to. So in my modern, my modern post-revolutionary communist phase, you're right that Blairism was very influential. Uh, as, I was reacting to it, um, but yes, uh, trying to understand that technocratic phase. And I, and I think I've explained this endlessly, but you know, when Margaret Thatcher said, there is no alternative, in a way, that's what it felt like. That was what the, 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 you know, the collapse of Stalinism, which was obviously a, a positive thing for internationally, for those of us that hated Stalinism for so long. But on the other hand, it, it, it for a period gave this notion that there was no alternative, but this way of doing things. And that was, in a way, what post-ideological politics came out of that, that kind of managerialism. We just tinker with the economy. We all agree on all the fundamentals. There's nothing to argue over anymore. Right? I thought there was plenty to argue over. Yeah. Um, so picking up the story um, 12 years after the defeat of New Labour, where we are, we, we've had nearly a decade and a half of Tory rule in this country. Um, I mean, to to give sort of my perspective on it, I'd say that everything I despised in the coalition and then that brief David Cameron majority government was what I felt that other people in the Labour Party didn't particularly appreciate was that everything that was bad about it was a continuity with New Labour, that managerialism, that marketization of more and more parts of life, even the notorious uh, benefit cuts were using sort of systems that have been put in place by, by New Labour. So, um, I mean, I, I think that plenty of people saw Brexit and Corbynism as two possible kind of breaks with that ongoing logic that we still hadn't um, escaped from. Um, what would you? What would be your analysis of the sort of political situation right now? Um, obviously, uh, Brexit has happened uh, with the. Uh, you know, following that that huge uh, majority that Boris Johnson won in 2019, um, but I'm still hearing sort of you 
know, people who are, are kind of unsatisfied with Brexit as it's actually been delivered. People who wanted that sort of free market, super neoliberal version of Brexit are complaining that um, we're simply recreating the same kind of regulations, but at state level. People who wanted more of a kind of Lexit sort of position, high uh, investment state aid, um, rolling back globalization have also got plenty to complain about, obviously. Um, do, do you sort of have an analysis of that? Or, or, and maybe does it connect to COVID and the way that COVID interrupted the um, th- that whole kind of um, Brexit process? Yeah, I mean, it, it, I think that one of the problems is that Brexit isn't a thing. You know, like you didn't vote for a thing where you kind of like, you get Brexit and you get this set of policies. I mean, that was my argument with a lot of, as it were, the reluctant Lexit people who didn't vote Brexit, do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Which was, it was the removal of a barrier. It was a way of having a, a, a political discussion. And you know, when you said to me perfectly reasonably, well, why did you, you know, you've kind of done a negative point. I mean, the point I was making was, is that there was a an anti-establishment revolt against all the odds in 2016. And I don't want to over-romanticise it because it had all sorts of kinds of political political issues involved. You know, it wasn't like just one thing, but it was nonetheless, it was an attempt at saying, we will have more control. I mean, you know, take back control over our lives. We want a different kind of politics. You then get into a defensive posture of fighting the rearguard action of, of, of both being of people trying to delegitimise that decision and, and brandish anyone associated with it in the most, you know, by producing their reputations and destroying them. Um, and I mean, ordinary people by being, you know, seen as dupes and xenophobes and all of those things. And so the problem is, is that it, it came to be that what you were trying to do was to capture the democratic part of Brexit. You were trying mm. to cling on to that rather than the yeah. positive, what will it mean, right? And you were so busy clinging on to that that it kind of like became this, you know, and that's what the European elections allowed people then to express that they weren't changing their minds. And then you get the Boris Johnson uh, regime. And the problem is, is that, you know, Brexit doesn't get done. I objected entirely and argued against, um, you know, oven ready Brexit. So I argued against uh, Boris Johnson in the 2019 election. You'd be glad to know. You know, I, 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 I didn't think that the Conservative Party's version of Brexit even as presented by Boris Johnson, well, I understood why people voted for it out of a desperation to cling on to something that they could get out of this. But it wasn't as though I was wandering around going, oh, yes, Boris Johnson will deliver Brexit for me. That'll be a lovely thing. Um, I, it, it always was a process. So, of course, what should have been and could have been, um, you know, well, now somebody's been elected on the back of this. Let's see if we can shake up politics. Got thrown a curveball, which was COVID. And it is difficult as a consequence to untangle it all because we, we all of those positive gains in terms of, you know, people's confidence about being able to change the world, people believing that you would have democratic accountability. You know, if, if you just had... Um, eventually ascertained that you weren't going to be the passive recipients of experts telling you you had no choice (laughs) in the EU and then you spend two years sitting on the sofa watching a daily press release being told by unelected experts what to do because of a genuine public health revenge yeah Yeah. I mean uh, 
a genuine public health emergency, but then gets tangled up and dragged on and used politically opportunistically, as we know, as a power grab by the Conservative Party and by, by, by uh, all sorts of uh, damaging things happened. It's very difficult to get that sense of positivity back or to, uh, to work out what you would do. Because I only ever thought that what Brexit meant was that you'd have a chance to say, no excuses anymore. What are we going to do? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what, what, what do we now want to do? You know, it's like the argument about immigration. You know, it's not that I thought, right, Brexit means no immigration. It's like now we have a conversation about what kind of immigration policies we have in the country where you're not basically saying you have no choice. All of yeah. these questions would be up for grabs. So it's when you ask me to characterise what it's like now, I mean, Boris Johnson was obviously always was and is um, an opportunist. He had a populist touch, no doubt about that. You can see that as the mayor. And I don't say that in an insulting way. A lot of people felt that he wasn't the usual, he wasn't the usual suspect. And it didn't matter how often people would say, well, he's an Eton boy people would say, yeah, but, you know, he's a, we like him, right? You know, that's how he got elected to be mayor. I think that he's both lost that populist touch, myself, and, mm. and also it's very difficult to untangle now. He's certainly not a man of principle and ideology. I mean, anyone listening is going to think I'm mad to even say it, but what I mean is it's, like, hard to know what people have got but I, one thing's interesting, isn't it, in the last few weeks and Partygate stuff, I really picked up on this, which was I was as furious as anyone else over all that. Rule for them, rule for us and all that. But I kept talking to people who were like Northwest Brexiteers because I'm still in touch with a lot of people who voted for me, who, by the way, are sometimes Labour activists as well as Conservative activists or non-activists at all. I'm just in touch with them all. Um and a lot of them would basically say, well, I voted for Boris Johnson and he's let us down badly. It's been an absolute disaster and all the rest. But I'll decide where he goes. I'm not having these lot. Yeah. And I've been quite yeah. surprised, you know, they're sort of like they're quite stroppy. They don't mm-hmm. like this idea that even though he's let them down, even though it's not what they wanted, even though where is Brexit? What, where are the signs that we're going to get it? They can't stand the levelling up thing. It's completely patronising nonsense. All of this. They still want to be the people who decide whether he goes or not. There's real cynicism about the attempt at kicking him out. So that shows you how complicated politics is. They don't admire him for his principle or think he's a man of honour. No. But he's their man. Yeah, and maybe it's it's just been a bit too transparent that these photographs and so on have been sat in some editor's drawer, and and now the word's gone up out that that uh, Boris Johnson has outlived his usefulness, as yeah, 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 yeah you know, done, yeah, done yeah. what done what people wanted him to do. <laughs> Um, what, what about free speech? You, you published I Find That Offensive, your book in 2016. Um, has, has the situation on that changed? I mean, the, the, the COVID sort of ordeal um, seems like an example enough of, uh, of, of a real um, tightening on what we can tolerate in, in, in terms of free speech. And, and there's been a kind of a, 
amazing, really, um, uh, way in which people have been comfortable with totally unaccountable platforms banning people for um, for their speech in the last couple of years. Um, anyway, maybe you could sort of summarise the book and, and update it a little bit to, you know, what's happened in the interim. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've always actually, free speech has always been one of my personal passions. I mean, you know, from when I was, um, you know, 18, 19, I, it was always one of the things I, I was at Warwick University and there was a lot of free speech, no platforming rows there. And I went, which I always, maybe, not always, but I, I, I sometimes took on popular positions on even as a kid and I didn't know what I was doing because I always thought no platforming was a really dangerous way to go and I thought that you should try and win arguments. And that was, I didn't know what I was, I didn't have any kind of philosophical knowledge of it. But anyway, so I've always been interested in it and passionate about it. And also I um, I, I was a teacher for years, so I, I'm very interested in kind of, you know, young 16 to 18 year olds that's like one of the that was the age I taught I taught in further education um and, and I just had noticed this thing and the reason I wrote the book which this was the significant point was I'd noticed that young uh people were increasingly wanting to close down debate that's what the book's about you know that I was going giving talks in school instead of people I didn't expect everyone to agree with me of course or you know go to a university and people would argue back and say, no, we shouldn't have absolute free speech and they'd have all sorts of arguments. But it changed from that argument about what the limits on free speech are, if any, what hate speech is and so on, to this phrase, you know, I find that offensive, you can't say that, you know, you can't say that culture. And, and people then crying a lot, or, you know, saying, I'm so, you, you're destroying me, say that. And, and I was like, genuinely taken aback. Now, obviously this is a social phenomenon that, that that's, that, that, that was happening uh, particularly in America and so I started I thought maybe I could just write a useful contribution to it and I wanted to I mean I genuinely wanted to try and understand why why the young in particular had become so so obsessed with safety right, so we've just been through the Covid period so you could say well we kind of like have seen it but you know I I it, it, the, the whole notion of safe spaces, the, the, the idea that your demand would be of a university authority that you were protected from, you know, that, that you know, you go to the university and you, you actually have a, and there was a campaign, I think at Goldsmiths, where they were demanding that the university provided safe spaces. It was so extraordinary. And that, and that they demanded that certain ideas weren't allowed to be heard. So this was even different. This was very different even from the the no platforming of the past, which although I didn't agree with it, was a, a different thing, which was, it was a kind of group, it was basically students saying, we will not have those people on campus because, you know, they are racist, right? This was a protect us from, and quite a infantilizing and mm. uh, way of behaving. So I, I wanted to look at that. And I basically, the, the, the thesis of the book is that, is that, that, that my generation and the generation after me had really socialized the young into this sort of idea of feeling safe and um, being wrapped, bubble wrapped and, and, and all those kind of things. And, and that's where the, the, the snowflake generation point came from. When I wrote it though, I mean, it's very, I'm not a book writer, I'm not a great writer and it's a short book. And I, um, you know, and I'm, and I'm not 
you know, I wish I was, but I'm not as erudite or as as, as, um, as fluent as I would want to be uh, in the written form. I I, but I read lots of books on free speech, and and I and I didn't want to. I mean, they were brilliant books on free speech. But I wasn't going to replicate that, but I thought I could bring something to it based on having spotted this this thing that was happening in America, and it was kind of like a warning. And I remember at the time when I sort of showed uh, drafts, first drafts of a couple of people, and they just sort of said, you know, just didn't, people just didn't think it was going to happen here. They just thought mm. it was like mad, wacky things. In America. Of course, now I read the book myself when I don't read the book, but, you know, I now realise that I underestimated the threat. And it's far more widespread now. I mean, I talk a little bit about the trans issue in the book. It was just beginning to come to the fore. I do talk about identity politics in the book. I think it came out in 2016, before the before the before the referendum, before the Brexit became the issue. Um, and but as you say, we, we've now got to a point where those issues are now way beyond universities. You know, I I write a whole section on um, on statues, um, but it was the it was the statue dispute in Oxford University. Everybody thought I was mad. You know, if you can go to university, mm. why would anyone make a fuss about statues? Now it's kind of commonplace that everyone now knows it's an issue. So. I, I'm very concerned about the state of free speech. I think the left have abandoned arguing for free speech. And, you know, you will know that the two things that m make people say that I'm a right wing, I know there's three, are Brexit, therefore I'm right wing. And I, I Brexit, so I was right wing, and then I became far right when I stood for the Brexit party. So I was right wing, then far right. Um, I'm right wing, far right racist enabler because I believe in free speech and I'm right wing and pro uh, business because I'm skeptical about environmentalism so those are the three things that people will say and uh, you know I, on the free speech issue for me it's extraordinary that the left has left this vacancy I mean the right are not pro free speech but they can claim the mantle of being pro-free speech because the left have led the charge of censorship. Yeah. So in the contemporary period, the identity associated, you know, a, a version of the left, but it drives me mad. So I have to listen to all these right-wingers say the left are to blame. And I have to listen to lots of people, my own peers on the left, who basically say free speech is just a demand to be able to spout bigotry. Very yeah, I, I do. I do find it uh, quite bewildering that so much of the left, like, continues to beat this drum, as you say, continues to um, take the very kind of phrase "free speech" to be some sort of dog whistle for something else, despite the fact that it was precisely those tools, as it were, of interpreting everything somebody says in the worst possible faith of um, interpreting everything through a sort of guilt by association uh, of um, a maximal a maximalist interpretation of the harm that words can do it was all of that playbook that was used to demolish the reputation of the left during the Corbyn period over the uh, anti-semitism um, uh, uh, affair um, which you know without necessarily getting too far into that so I, I think it's enough to say that that was a, that was the tools of the left being used against the left 
um, in, in and that's part of why it was so um, so much more effective than so many of the other charges used against Corbyn. So I, I totally agree that it, it, it's frankly bewildering and wrong that there isn't a, a kind of left defence of free speech. That's before we get to what's going on right now with COVID. You know, the government in Canada, you know, assuming the right to take control of people's bank accounts because of their political opinions. And, and we're, we're pretty hard line in our, in our opposition to, to that on this show. Um, what I did want to say was that, and maybe this sort of um, fits with what, what you were describing of your experience of talking to right-wingers about this, um, one thing I, I do sort of find frustrating um, talking to people who have made the cause of free speech a big part of their public identity. Um, I'm thinking of Toby Young here, who we interviewed last year. And I, fa- I found like, we agreed on so much, actually, on this issue. But many of the people who take this as one of their big causes are completely unwilling to countenance material explanations for, like, why we have this um, censorious culture where uh, free speech is not, there's not much value placed on it in the, in the first instance. So, I mean, just, just for example, um, you know, what, what you're describing with um, the kind of uh, the broad popularity of like call out culture sort of things, and also the stuff that goes on in, in, in universities at times, particularly the more elite ones, as it, as it happens in my experience, um, I mean, a, a material explanation of that could start from the idea that the the total sort of commodification of the public sphere on digital media means that um, we're always going through these private companies who ultimately have algorithmic control over what voices get privileged and what don't. Um, we've also got a, a situation with the the marketization of universities means that actually the successive governments have been urging students to regard themselves as consumers who should feel happy and comfortable and not challenged and, and so on. Um, and then add to that a kind of increasingly downwardly mobile and competitive uh, professional and media class where calling out a colleague or engaging in a sort of woke self-flagellation for one's privilege is actually has become a kind of way of differentiating yourself and getting ahead in these media institutions that 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 kind of define the way the rest of us end up speaking so there's all these ways in which there are quite like material causes where the more marketization there is the more likely these sorts of habits these sort of censorious habits are going to come through so the way i put it to toby young was well you know would would you roll back tuition fees would you roll back uh the way that we we now treat universities as private businesses because it would solve a lot of what you're complaining about and and he he gave a very abrupt no (laughs) to to that question but i would but not because i think it will help with free speech you see I mm-hmm. think that the material, uh, I mean, I think those are, those are factors, but I don't think they're the substantive ones. Okay. And unless you win the arguments for freedom and find new ways of, of, of winning arguments for liberty, I mean, I think what's happened is that the left has, has vacated the field. I mean, you were talking about um, and, and the, the, the Corbynist, you know, the attack on, 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 on Corbynism uh, around free speech. You know, historically, every single time um you know free speech has been under not every single time but I mean broadly speaking 
um, it's been the left that's had to use free speech against authoritarian. I mean, this mm -hmm. is where the right way to consider it. It's like their idea to clamp down on free speech. But on my view, and this is where you kind of go the beyond left and right, I work with Toby Young because I now don't care who I work with, and this is genuine, or what people think of my reputation, already they've decided. Because I think that we've all got to say this is a foundational, fundamental aspect. And if, if for me, if you're progressive, if you want to change the world, you need freedom. And you were using the the the, the Canadian truckers. I mean, it's extraordinary. It's extraordinary what's Completely, happening. Yeah, yeah. I mean, beyond. But then I look at uh, left wing commentary in this country, and they say, well, you know, the problem with them is is that they're anti Semitic, fascist. Uh, you know. One of the com one of my sound familiar. <laughs> one of the lefty one of the lefty commentators, you know, that I just saw on social media really was saying, I oh, said so they've lost their money in their bank accounts, but they're still, you know, they're still there. You know, who's funding them? It's unbelievable. I mean, does anyone remember the miners' strike or any time anyone has ever had to fight before? You know, oh, where yeah. where's their money coming from? No doubt, you know, Russia, China, or far right, or you know, and all this. But they're being called fascist by the left. So I'm sorry, I'm being. But the reason I'm saying that is because it just shows you how far things have gone. So for me, it's very one of the key things that's happened is the delegitimizing of even the issue of free speech or the issue in this instance of resistance, the delegitimizing, which is being led often by the left, which is extraordinary. And we so that's what I'm saying is even if you got rid of marketization from universities, which you should anyway, by the way, because mm -hmm. I don't want students to think they're consumers. I think there's 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 uh, there's much more to it, which is is that we have forgotten how to win the arguments for freedom, or rather, we've avoided those arguments. Right, we've done anything rather than do it because there is this fear, and I do think this is a problem that we will be delegitimized ourselves if we become associated with the argument so you avoid the argument so my concern about your material point is not that i would unlike toby i would agree with you more more than disagree mm -hmm. with you on it but i just think that the problem is is that it's much harder than that i mean i i think the task is much harder we have to be explicit what it is we're saying because actually you could have a marketized university and still believe in free speech even though I don't want to marketize university, and even though I can see, as you say, that it's contributed to, and I think I say that in the book, I just don't think it's the major contributor, that if mm -hmm. you turn students into consumers who demand and, and you issue them with satisfaction surveys, left, right, and center, then they start saying, well, I want to be satisfied. But what is more worrying and what doesn't explain it is you know, the way that the trade union movement, for example, has clamped down on free speech amongst its union members. I mean, unbelievably, ordinary working people now, it's not just in universities, are being described as far-right racist because they object to, for example, going along with, you know, unconscious bias training in the workplace. Being absolutely dumped. And treat, and I, I because we had a lot of it during lockdown because of the whole George Floyd thing, I had lots of people contact me who were, you know, what would have been tra traditionally left-wing trade unionists 
who were being dumped on because they didn't like identity politics and they were being dumped on not by their bosses but by their unions yeah well i mean on on this show we've had a lot of people activists involved in um black lives matter demonstrations on the show and, and and share a lot of um their project what we don't share is the way in which almost instantly this became a sort of a new layer of hr revolution with um you know training in white fragility a book written by a white woman of course um uh you know immediately became this this sort of hegemonic um idea of how we think about race and power and also that uh, companies can say well we did the training so you can't sue us it, yeah. it was to me completely transparent well, you'll was... know in universities i mean it's a tyranny in universities in terms of the you know instead of it being like nobody objects i certainly don't object to critical race theory or any of the ideas associated with it being part of the panoply of ideas that you have at a university you know like these are things mm-hmm. but when it becomes hr departments demanding that you sign up to or it's your job right, that there's only one way, that all of the training that people, I mean, I know lots of people who teach, and there's a lot of awful things happening. You, you say about Black Lives Matters, I went on a demo. I went, and went on the demos, right? I mean, it's not like, of course, you know, I'm an anti-racist, right? Entirely understandable. But what happened was it became institutionalised, and I completely disagree with the um, identity politics version of anti-racism, which I think cuts um uh, major divisions amongst uh, uh, ordinary people and i i kind of said in the house of laws recently you know i'm i'm from the generation of black and white unite and fight which we did and by mm-hmm. the way it wasn't it was you know as it happens a great steps were made as a consequence of what people did not what i did but what people did historically what all of us did generationally um it didn't get rid of racism absolutely not but absolutely did it make a difference yeah because don't you remember I mean no you're not as old as me but I mean when I lived in Coventry when I lived in Newcastle when I lived in Bradford those three places before I moved to London there were gangs of racists chasing people down beating the hell out of them because of their because of their skin color the police turning a blind eye worse than turning a blind eye and workplace racism was endemic right that was when i was young that was what i was in, involved in fighting and to then have somebody say that just because you're white you've got white privilege you know all these things it just seems to me to, i mean that's a crass version of what they say um i think the arguments about power the arguments about all of the issues that came up in relation to george floyd the differences between the UK and America, but nonetheless problems in the UK in relation to race relations, all of these things need to be discussed openly and argued over. Absolutely. But you can't do that. As you say, it becomes a top-down HR demand at work. Sign up or else. And if you don't go along with this, you're a racist. And I'm afraid that that's the way the left has gone. And it's very damaging for the reputation of those uh, of us because what happens just sorry finally you know one of the problems about when we're even talking about left and right I, I mean all the, the the really I mean I meet loads of young people who are really bright political interested all their instincts are really positive and they think they're right wing why do they think they're right wing 
they're not yeah, they don't even know what that means right they've got no they're no they're not really right i mean they're like 19 20 21 right they're not like they don't even know. and the reason why they think that is because why would you be on the left mm. right why would you be on the left what is attractive about the left if you are, are believe in freedom if you have the instinct to believe in agency if you for example from a a, a leave voting family working class family if you think that ordinary people should be in control of their destiny, why would you be on today's left? You wouldn't. So they think they're on the right. And then it just gets to the point where you just think, what is the point of those labels anymore? It just, we need to build new movements and develop new, a new language almost and not cling on to the old stuff, but start from scratch, which is what I try and do. Yeah, well, I, I suspect it's going to increasingly happen. If Brexit was the sort of stimulus for quite a lot of people to suddenly, like, drop some of that he- hesitation to work with people who historically they'd thought were, you know, the opposite side of the spectrum and so they didn't want to have dealings with. I think COVID has been another kind of s- stimulus for a lot of people, a, a lot of people who I couldn't bear when they were attacking us in the Corbyn years, uh, I'm quite happy to sit down with now because of a, a shared analysis of the authoritarianism that's come on with um, with with COVID. Um, I, I, I mean, thus far, you've 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 got through nearly the hour successfully swatting away any attempt by me to link your ambitions to any thread in the Boris Johnson project. But in, indulge me with one more attempt at it would you um i, I think as we, we were talking giving this kind of discussion of um of of race and the way in which what in the past was a kind of spontaneous community rooted street movement against actual racist violence has become a kind of set of codes and hr tricks and training manuals that kind of moving upstairs of anti-racism um that was quite a lot of the analysis found in the the Sewell report that the government commissioned last year which a lot of people on the left were kind of had a sort of knee-jerk reaction against i think you know not that i agreed with all of it but i think quite a lot of that urgency of that knee-jerk reaction was that they recognized some of the power of the analysis that it gave in fact that that categories like institutional racism have been deployed actually as this kind of top-down management tool as opposed to something that's actually aimed at like resolving actual incidents of of racism so i mean that that was i mean that was reported on as as a uh, as a text that uh, that manira Mertzer had a, a big hand in. I, I, I wondered how closely you were paying attention to that. Was that debated in the in the Lords? Was that something that you had you took any interest in? Or again, is that just another strand of the Boris Johnson project that you've only got a coincidental? Um, well, I was, uh, well, I wasn't. Side. Well, I wasn't in the Lords. I mean, I I uh, I spoke quite a lot about did quite a lot of media on the Soul Report as mm. much as anyone asked me, but. Um, I wasn't in the Lords when it came out. I think I, I think I just went in just about then. Or oh, right. And I thought, and I thought, by the way, that 
the Conservative Party were utterly cowardly about how they dealt with it as well, because they 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 commissioned this report as soon as it was unpopular and there was a backlash seemed to dump it, although the rumour is in the last couple of days that it might be about to get another hearing. Um, I think that, you know, you're, you're trying to, I mean, you know, you're trying to link something to do with me. I, I think it's a more complicated, I mean, I'd like to take some responsibility for it, which I can't. Um, I, I, um, and by the way, there's lots of, th I'm not sure that, um, there's lots of the soil reports that actually, I don't think are, you know, need a lot of developing, let's put it that way, right? But I thought it was a really mm -hmm. good basis for a new conversation. And I've already said to you, you know, identity politics, I think has been, is it been a real scourge, a, a, a divisive scourge. Um, and, I, and I wish that more people on, historically on the left understood that. I think it's going to destroy the contemporary Labour Party, if you want to know. I think that the Labour Party is going to be finished if it carries on down this road. And I think that Corbyn, um, I will get back, Corbyn didn't understand it was eating away at the Labour Party, his Labour Party, in the way that it was. He was kind of cavalier about it. It was almost like he didn't know. And I remember talking to some people around him and explaining the trans issue and saying what it would mean for women in the Labour Party. And they just sort of thought it was like, oh, look, Claire, you know, don't worry about, it. you know what I mean? Like, no one's going to notice, you know, it's like, like a minor point, right? And I, mm. I, I thought they underestimated what, 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 what the threat was. Um, I think you that think there it was, are... Sorry to jump in. Do, do you think it was, in, do, do you think it was consequential during those years? You, I think you said that the people it was neglected. I think, I think it was mm. neglected. I think if you think that identity politics is just a fringe issue in the contemporary Labour Party, it isn't. You see what I mean? I was suggesting mm. dealing with it. By the way, I, I actually also thought they should deal with anti-Semitism, proper anti-Semitism, which was in the Labour Party, loads of it. I thought that these things should be dealt with, but identity, I don't want to get into that, but that I, I, that I, I, I thought that it was important to confront this issue to say we get you know we un they were if they'd have dealt with it they wouldn't have lost a load of the best female organizers from the Labour Party who were leaving lots of them uh, on the issue of trans yeah on the issue of gender identity because they thought it was just a sort of oh well aren't we, we're the party that's anti-racist so if this is the form anti-racism takes we're the LGB so if there's T We'll have that too, you know, all this sort of thing. We, we you know, it just, it was a carelessness, a, a lack of understanding about what identity politics was doing. And I think it's been fracturing and dangerous and damaging. So to go back to the Conservatives, I think that there's a group of people who, one way or another, have been attracted to the Conservative Party. People, I mean, who like, like Kemi Badenoch would be one of them, but there are others around the Conservative Party who are anti-identity politics, many of them not white, and have actually joined the Conservative Party in reaction to some of the Labour Party's um, identity politics stuff, who, if you want, are aspirational, meritocratic. I mean, I, I don't believe the Tory party can deliver for them, so don't get me wrong. I'm just saying I understand rhetorically how it would have happened for younger generations who, who don't have the same, as I've just said, you know, they can't remember yeah. the Tories of old. Well, you, you refer that, to Britain being uh, downstream from America with quite a lot of this. And yeah. I, th I think it's playing out on the other side. You, you just look at how multicultural yeah, the growth in support for Trump was in 2020. Yeah, exactly. I, I'm sure you know that kind of thing. Yeah. And yeah. They, want to, they want to be seen as beyond their race.
beyond mm. their, 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 their sex. You know, they don't want to be like, they want to be like, I don't want to be a black woman. I want to be the woman who's going to run this department, that department and all that. But anyway, the reason I'm saying that is because I think that what the Saul report um, reflected was a different kind of constituency around the Conservative Party that took on identity politics as a way of taking on the Labour Party. And I think that it's, for me, a tragedy that it was the Conservative Party who did that and nobody else did it, right? So I wish more people had done it across left and right. That's the first thing. Secondly, the people who the Sewell Report gathered together were definitely not right-wingers. It was a, re a really mixed bunch of people, but they've now been delegitimized as right-wingers because they were part of the Sewell Report, which is the irritating thing about all of this, right? The wrong kind of blacks, as it were, and we know the way that plays out. And as a consequence of which, the, the Saul report was attacked in the most um, philistine fashion by people on the left who should have known better and looked at it more carefully and said, we don't like this bit, we do like this bit, that bit's quite good, rather than saying it's a cover for people who are pro-slavery. I mean, for God's sake. And, and, uh. and crassly, um, in a philistine fashion, didn't mm. take any of it seriously at all. And that is an abysmal failure on the left's part, right? So any young uh, black activist coming up who, who, who wants to make a mark in society, who wants to change the world, has two choices. They either go over there uh, to the identity politics wing, as it were, become a voice there, or they become one of the kind of, uh, um, you know, a supporter of the Soul Report and end up on GB News or something, right? Because we haven't given them any choice. I mean, where else are you going to go, right? Yeah. And so, that, what an abdication of, I mean, terrible what left up. So, so, there is no link between me and the Tory party, but there are people in the Tory party who've been better on free speech and identity politics of late than in the Labour Party or on the left or on the, or, you know, on any aspect of the left. Um, and therefore, as a consequence, people try and make some link. I just think it's more the collapse of the left. And I have tried to not go along with what people think is left or right, but say what I believe, regardless of what the label is. Even though I really, really hate it when people call me right wing, it bristles. And if anyone calls me a racist, I mean, I really, I mean, I can't begin to tell you how viscerally I hate it it just turns my stomach so I don't like the labels but in the end I know that the reason people use them is because they're not prepared to argue and if they argue then fine but delegitimizing through using labels is the end of politics and we shouldn't let it happen we owe it to younger generations to explain why the richness of political rows and arguments is what moves things on. Well, I think that there are a lot of things about the context we find ourselves in that make it very difficult to kind of rise to that. 
Um, but I, I think that the word you used, Philistinism, is is a very useful one actually for this. That we have to aspire to not be Philistines and aspire to actually take every argument on it <laughs> on its merits. On its own uh, merits, yeah. 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 Uh, and if that means that you know more of us have to weather a few accusations, um, then then so be it. Uh, well, I, I think a, a lot of our listeners uh, may have come into the show with some preconceptions about you, uh, Baroness Fox, um, and very probably won't agree with everything you've said. But I, I, I have no—I've absolutely no doubt that, like you're, you're somebody who has uh, has spent your life cultivating the ability to actually speak in good faith about things, and uh, I, I really appreciate you coming on. The popular show to speak to us. Thanks, James. If I if I can just say that um we we free advert, but um we brought we bring out these little things called letters on liberty, and the reason I'm saying it was it was our attempt during lockdown to say we've got to remake the arguments for freedom on anything, on the arts, on science, on any of these things, because my appeal to everyone is just that we can't be complacent. I'm just not good enough at winning the arguments, and none of us are. <laughs> But, but but for our aspiration should be to be better at winning people over to our side. And um, I think that if we can make that good faith promise, then yeah. then I'm in a very privileged position in the House of Lords now, mad. Mm-hmm. I can't be sacked, totally undemocratic. Um, so I've got an easy ride of it. It's much harder for a lot of people. But what we can at least do is show solidarity to each other and not and not throw each other under the bus um, and also make a personal commitment to trying to improve the arguments we use for what we believe in.